Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Michael Schulman, and I wrote Ballad of the Oscar Streaker for The New Yorker, and it's the story of the week. Five weeks before the 2009 Oscars, I got a call from Hugh Jackman's producer. Jackman was hosting the show, and he wanted to know if I would be one of the show's writers. Like so many things in my career, I figured somebody just made some kind of mistake. I figured I was just a last-minute addition to a huge group of talented variety show writers. So I flew to New York City, where we went to work out of a conference room at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. When I walked in, I saw just three other guys, all my age, all of whom were hired the same week that I was. There was no head writer. There wasn't even a whiteboard. It was just the four of us looking at our computers. It was bizarrely casual. In fact, we spent most of our time trying to figure out how much room service we could order without getting in trouble. Hugh Jackman would come in for a couple of hours each day, telling us how great our ideas were and hugging us and letting us try on his $18,000 plastic Wolverine claws. What I learned is that even though it's the highest rated entertainment show of the year, the Oscars is a pretty thrown together operation. I've written for sitcoms that you've never heard of, and we got way more notes and time and money to make those shows. So, I'm never surprised when chaos ensues at the Oscars, whether it's announcing La La Land instead of Moonlight as Best Picture, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, or my very favorite, the 1974 Streaker. Writing is hard, who's got that kind of time? When you're already busy trying to be Joe Stein. So he turns on a mic, maybe twiddles a knob, calls a journalist friend who's got an actual job. Auditory, single story, just listen to smart people speak. Conversation filled with information, it's the story of the week. 
With the Oscars coming up this weekend, I figure how better to cover the awards than to dive into the best thing that's ever happened at them. In 1974, a man ran across the stage at the Academy Awards, butt naked. That was the last that most people heard of him, but it turns out that was only the beginning of a much weirder story. The guy who streaked the Oscars was a former Ronald Reagan speechwriter turned to this kind of gay liberation performance artist. He was like the zealot of the history of gay rights, popping up at the murder of Harvey Milk, hanging out with Robert Maplethorpe, and interviewing John Waters. He lived a life full of stunts, pranks, and pornography, until one money-making scheme ultimately led to his death. Michael Shulman wrote about all of this for The New Yorker. Michael, thank you for coming on and telling us about this crazy story. Thanks for having me. It was 1974, which is pretty, it's an inflection point in society, right? Like the Vietnam War had ended the year earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was a very unstable, strange, slightly unhinged and electric moment in American life. And the Oscars kind of reflect that, right? They've got like two cool hosts and two old school hosts. They have four people hosting. And one of them is David Niven. So this is like an old school British actor. Yes, a very dry wit. And now to divulge the contents of this year's most important envelope is a very important contributor to world entertainment. So it's the end of the Oscars night and they're about to introduce Elizabeth Taylor to give the Best Picture Oscar when this sort of amazing thing happens out of nowhere. Right. So David Niven is gearing up to bring on Elizabeth Taylor and behind him, all of a sudden, a 30-something-year-old man uh, runs across the stage totally nude. But he's so casual and calm about it. He just looks like he was supposed to be there. He kind of just seems to know where the camera is, flashes the peace sign. He just seems so cool. Yeah, and then he's gone. (laughs) David Niven did not exactly know what was happening at first, and you kind of see him react and figure out how to play this moment because the audience is rumbling and... Not sure what to do. It's sort of nervous laughter. The band plays, yeah. which is an odd reaction, like it's a parade, and everyone applauds. It's a very odd reaction. Yeah, weird energy. And it's sort of awkward. And then David Niven, to his credit, immediately gets the energy and focus back in the room by saying two things. He says, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, that was almost bound to happen. And so that gets people laughing. And, and it was then, bound to happen because it was a, the 1974 was like the year of the streaker, right? Yeah, they were everywhere. I mean, it was true. It was almost bound to happen because streaking had been such a popular fad and had gotten bigger and bigger, bigger. It, it had started several months earlier with like a housewife running through the valley. And then suddenly there Wait, were- Wait, that's how streaking starts? Yeah. What? Uh, yeah, there was a- there was I a, figured it was like college kids. Well, it became a a major college kid fad, like, you know, the entire student body of the University of Georgia had 1,543 people streak across campus, and then people were streaking football games. It was infectious. Streaking was just a thing that people did, but only for like six months. And so by the time you got to the Oscars in April 1974, it had been going on for a couple months, and people actually sort of expected that someone might try to streak the Oscars. So when David Niven says... This was almost bound to happen. 
that wasn't just a line. Like, that was kind of true. So that gets people laughing. And then he pauses a moment and then has this perfect one-liner. Probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. A dick joke. Well done. Incredible. And that just yeah. gets everyone back. And it's this perfect save. And did people at home actually see his penis? The cameras managed to avoid, you know, the sweet spot. So, yeah, <laughs> that was some quick thinking. <laughs> and how did this guy pull it off? This sounds like an impossible thing. I, I actually spent an Oscars backstage once. The Oscars had me like live blog or something. Uh-huh. And it's, I was on the wings. It's pretty well regulated back there. Like, I don't I don't see how it is now. I mean, there. I'm sure I'm sure the oh. streak had them tighten the. The security, but basically he got a press pass from a friend. He came in and uh, he sneaked backstage. He later said that he was so nervous about all the wires. He thought he was going to get electrocuted, but he waited because he wanted to wait until the final envelope. And then when the time came, he took off his clothes and he broke through the, the cyclorama, you know, the psych that was part of the set. And he just ran across the stage, and then he was on the other side of the stage, and he thought he was going to be apprehended by security guards, but instead uh, the Academy press people found him and brought him to the press room to do interviews. (laughs) So their immediate reaction was, let's hear more from this guy. Yeah, we want to know more. Who are you? So he never got arrested or in any trouble for this? Nope. And who is he? And why is he doing this? So... The streaker's name was Robert Opal. He was a kind of gay man about town and sort of wild child. He has an interesting life that led him to that moment, right? Because he grows up conservative, right? Right, yeah. You know, he had a very suburban, middle-class family. He was in the Boy Scouts. Not just in the Boy Scouts. You report that he was an Eagle Scout, and then he did Order of the Arrow, which is like for the like 1% of people who love the Boy Scouts so much. You seem to know more about the Boy Scouts than I do. I've never touched the Boy Scouts, but... You should not touch Boy Scouts. That's been a whole problem. <laughs> but I, for my first book where I tried to learn how to be a man to raise my son, I had never done the Boy Scouts because my mom thought it was a fascist organization. So I went and got my first badge and did a sleepover with the Boy Scouts where I learned about all this. Wow. So, yeah, he, yeah I mean, he was the straight-A student, this overachiever, Robert Opal. You know, he was the student body president and all that kind of stuff. He uh, tried to join the Peace Corps and teach teach English in Thailand. Um, and he uh, studied Thai and he was about to go. And then the Peace Corps basically kicked him out because he was gay. And then... What, what yeah, year is that, basically? That's like mid-60s, early wow. to mid-60s. And then he wound up working for... Um, Reagan's gubernatorial campaign in 1966, which was obviously a very conservative campaign, but he was fired because he was gay. Again, there was a press leak that said that there were homosexuals in this campaign and they got rid of him. So he was- What was he doing for Reagan? Uh, speech writing. And he was oh, a man. really smart, like straight laced, straight and narrow kind of guy. And then after after 1966, he was transformed by the hippie movement, the sexual revolution, and he emerged in the early 70s as this hippie, wild child, crazy man. Do you think that's because he got kicked out of the conservative world for being gay and this was the only world that was available to him? Yeah, I think so, yeah. because he obviously was on this conservative path 
and uh, was just shut out of that world over and over again. But also the times changed. In 1969, there was, of course, Stonewall, which really changed what it meant to be gay. And he sort of found his place in this new gay liberation movement. What makes him decide to do this streaking bit at the Oscars? Well, (laughs) at the time he said, uh, it just occurred to me that it might be an educative thing to do. You know, people shouldn't be ashamed of being nude in public. Besides, it's a hell of a way to launch a career. Yeah, that last part sounds like the truth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was a little bit of attention seeker. You know, he used to show up at like the gay liberation marches dressed as a character named Mr. Penis, who was like, supposed to be a, a cousin of Mr. Peanut. He would what, just, was it like a penis with a monocle? Yeah, just like a giant penis costume. And then after he streaks, he gets fired from his job. He's working for the Los Angeles Unified School District as uh, helping to, to figure out ways to teach English to kids who come to L.A. without speaking English. Yeah. They fire him for streaking. They immediately were like, your services are no longer needed. (laughs) (laughs) But he managed to hang on to his 15 minutes of fame. And suddenly everyone in Hollywood was really interested in him. He went on the Mike Douglas show. He did a comedy show in Philadelphia, like a stand up show where someone streaked him. Oh, so someone showed up at his event to streak him. Yeah. But he kind of what I love about Robert Opal is that he he was really funny. Like right after this mm. happened, he launched a sort of fake campaign for president. And this was, of course, at the same time that Watergate was all going down. He created his own party called the Nude Lib Party. And his platform was total transparency. And his sl- campaign slogan was not just another crooked dick. Nice. <laughs> so he was like, he, he was pure comedy. But he really also had a sincere belief that nudity should not be shameful and that sexuality should not be shameful and that the way to dispel the shame was to take off your clothes. So he's living in L.A. and uh, he's got a nemesis in L.A., the L.A. police chief, Ed Davis. That's right. I mean, Ed Davis was a real homophobe. You know, the police were really constantly cracking down on, you know, homosexuals. And there was just constant harassment in L.A. for the gay community there. So not long after the Oscar streak, there was this L.A. City Council meeting to discuss whether they should put a ban on nudity in public areas. And um, Robert Opal showed up again, nude, walked right up to Police Chief Davis, held up a peace sign again and asked, is this lewd? But he went to jail for this? Yeah, he was sentenced to four months. Uh, he did four months in jail for yeah. taking off his clothes at the LA City Council and zero for being naked at the Oscars. Four months in jail seems like a lot. Well, don't mess with Police Chief Ed Davis in 1974. Yeah. And then he runs yeah. for City Council in LA, right? Yeah, when his presidential bid did not work out. Well, he started a writing campaign for City Council. It was sponsored okay. by a committee called Fags for Unseating Civic Knuckleheads. Take the first letter of each one of those words and you get F-U-C-K. And mostly was trying to remove Ed Davis from office. And then while he's running, he somehow gets arrested again. So he showed up to um, the Christopher Street West parade, which is basically the gay pride parade from that time, dressed as Mr. Penis. So there was some disagreement within the parade committee about whether they wanted this kind of thing. And the gay movement then, as now really, was sort of caught between conformity and assimilation and seeming respectable and undermining heteronormative standards. And obviously, Opal did not care about good behavior or respectability. And so he shows up as as this penis character and the parade ejected him and he was handcuffed and just spent a few hours in jail. 
Right. There's this the rift in the in the gay community that, like you said, exists now between do we fight for acceptability or do we let our freak flag fly? Oh, exactly. I mean, that's that's been a, a perennial tension within the mm. you know queer rights um, going up through gay marriage. Like, do we want yeah. marriage? Do we want to partake in the institution of marriage like everyone else? Or is marriage too heteronormative? And, you know, do we want to maintain a kind of separatism and and a, a more radical lifestyle? You know, I think it was the, it was that same kind of tension, but the mid 70s version of it. So he's sort of famous now from the streaking and he's made the most of it. And then he becomes the editor of a gay porn magazine in Los Angeles. How does that go for him? Oh, yeah. This magazine is called Finger. And when I was researching this story, <laughs> I was in San Francisco at the GLBT historical center there. And uh, I found copies of Finger, which is very raunchy. It's like straight up total smut. But there was one the thing that I found in these archives that was like a, a total gem is that in one of these issues of Finger, he wrote an editor's letter, like a welcome letter that was basically his manifesto of nudity. So he said, the thrust of my message is undress. As long as cover-up is part of anyone's mental set, he or she will be diminished in his efforts to be totally self-actualized. Undress goes far beyond simply urging one to remove the clothes from one's physical person, but that can be a start, a visual statement of innocence, an external sign of one's intent to exorcise hypocrisy. So he's a real believer in nudity in addition yeah. to uh, the gay rights stuff. Yeah. And a believer in, in, in sexuality, that human sexuality should not be right. shamed. He goes on in that ed- editorial to write a, more about Catholicism. And I think you see some of his conservative upbringing coming through and his, his sense of rebellion against kind of Catholic morality. And so he's working. Why is it called Finger, the magazine? <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next gay magazine he works for is called Drummer, which I figured is some other gay slang term I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it's called Drummer, but Drummer was, it was like the Bible of like gay S&M. It is a leather magazine. Oh, okay. And he was writing about like the cycle sluts, which were leather men on motorcycles. And then the magazine gets raided by nemesis Ed Davis at some point, right? Yes, that's right. So the LAPD was really harassing the people at Drummer. And they actually held a, a charity S&M slave auction. And Police Chief Davis tried to prosecute the publishers on charges of slavery. Oh, of actual slavery. Uh, slavery. Like, oh, you're having a slave auction. Slavery is against the law. <laughs> did that work? No, of course it didn't. That's okay, ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> But it did sort of harass the magazine out of L.A. And um, they moved their operations to San Francisco. And that's part of the reason why Robert Opal himself moved to San Francisco. In San Francisco, Robert Opal would reinvent himself as an art gallery owner and connoisseur of gay photography, rubbing shoulders with Robert Maplethorpe, John Waters, even Harvey Milk, until he rubbed shoulders with the wrong guy which is podcast speak for murder. But first, our advertisers want to sell you a very fine artisan leather harness. I'm just kidding. It's probably MeUndies. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Just three years after he streaked the Oscars, Robert Opal's basically been run out of Los Angeles. And he finds a place where everyone and their hardcore porn magazines are welcome. Yeah, if you had any means to move from wherever you were and you were gay, you went to San Francisco in the 70s, right? Absolutely. And this is where we get the explosion of the Castro. Droves of people were coming from around the country and gay people from around the country were coming from their little towns and going to the Castro because they knew that in San Francisco they could be themselves and have a community. Even in the early 90s when I was in college in the Bay Area, we would drive by the Castro and it was it was scary as hell. It was like Pete Townsend's rough boys gay, like <laughs> leather. And it just felt like everyone was looking to, to fuck or fight. Like, it just scared the hell out of me. Well, so actually, when, when Robert Opal got there, he found the even rougher gay neighborhood, which was south of Market oh. or Soma, which was like Castro was where the sort of the young, pretty boys were, like going da- disco dancing. Soma was the leather community. That was like hardcore leather. So that's where Robert Opal found his place. He moved there in 1977. You know, and this was, of course, before the AIDS epidemic. So... There was just an aspect of hedonism and possibility and Mm. the dating scene where you could actually find people to date if you were a gay man. And it was a place that was totally sexually liberated. Yeah, you wrote in your piece about this guy, Jim Stewart, who (laughs) approached him with this crazy line. Oh, well, so uh, Jim Stewart was one of the leathermen in Soma, and he, he had an erotic photography business in his apartment. And he wrote a memoir called Folsom Street Blues, where he he wrote about how one day after Robert Opal arrived, he found Opal, you know, knocking on his door, 
And uh, Jim Stewart says, why do I think I know you? Have we fucked? And Opal said, I streaked the Academy Awards. <laughs> so many ways to be known in the Castor District at the time. <laughs> yeah, but the reason that he was there seeking out Jim Stewart was because he was uh, opening an art gallery, an erotic art gallery in South of Market called Fayway Studios. And he was looking for artists to, to display there. Fayway being a pun. It's a pun on Fay Ray from, yeah. uh, you know, the girl from King, King Kong, Kong movies in the yeah. 30s, the actress. Um, but also Fay, F-E-Y, as in, you know, limp-wristed Fay, gay stereotype. But that was Robert And he's Opal. a photographer. So he is opening an art gallery that's going to show a lot of photography, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is how he meets Robert Maplethorpe. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that's so incredible about opal's post streaking life is that he kept brushing shoulders with these other famous people from countercultural history and one of them was was robert maplethorpe who was very young and not well known at the time he had barely cracked california he was really a, a new york artist who was producing these homoerotic uh very boundary pushing photographs and opal put some of his work in in fayway studios was it one of the first places that Maplethorpe was shown in? Certainly in California. Wow. So Robert Opal's kind of a big deal in this scene. Yeah. I mean, this was like a storefront gallery, but it kind of became a hot spot where people would go. And at the time, gay art in San Francisco had mostly been shown like in restaurants and in clubs, places where people are not necessarily looking at the art. So to have a gallery that was dedicated to erotic, rough, gay art was pretty groundbreaking. Okay, so he's on one extreme of this gay rights movement in San Francisco, but there's a whole other part of the gay rights movement in San Francisco, which is like the Harvey Milk part, which is Harvey Milk's wearing the three-piece suit and he's running for the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. What does Opal think of Harvey Milk at that point? You know, it's really interesting because I saw Harvey Milk is almost like a mirror image of Robert Opal. Like they sort of had parallel past. They had both started out in, you know, sort of conservative politics and then sort of became these wild child hippies and then wound up in San Francisco. But whereas Opal was opening an erotic art gallery, Harvey Milk cut his hair, got his suit, ran for political office, and he was projecting a much more, again, like respectable image of gay culture and gay gay influence. But Robert Opal was really into Harvey Milk. And there's this one story where he actually walked into Milk's campaign office, which was at Harvey Milk's camera shop in the Castro. And he offered a campaign poster that he had created. And it was a picture of a woman with an exposed breast. And she was piercing her left breast with a pin that said Harvey Milk for supervisor. And he kind of left it there like, in case you need it, here's an idea for a campaign poster. And of course, that is absolutely the opposite of what they wanted to (laughs) project. You know, it it was just pushing that boundary, pushing that envelope. That's not what the Milk campaign was doing. They were appealing to like the labor unions and trying to expand their voting base beyond just the gay men in the Castro. And that's how he eventually won. And then not long afterwards, of course, Dan White, one of the other council members, assassinates Harvey Milk after he wins. Dan White was this former policeman 
very clean-cut guy, conservative, representing a very conservative white bread district in San Francisco. He was elected in the same election as Harvey Milk, and they were colleagues. And there's a sort of long, tangled history to how Dan White got to this point. But then he showed up at City Hall, climbed in through a window with a gun, and assassinated the mayor, George Moscone, and Harvey Milk right in City Hall. And Dianne Feinstein, who was their colleague, had to come out and tell the press, the murderer is Dan White. I mean, there's video of this. It is jaw-dropping. And this really, I mean, upsets everyone in San Francisco, especially in the gay community, but it really motivates Robert Opal. Oh, yeah. Immediately, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories swirling and, you know, how could this have happened? Were the cops in on it? There was a lot of suspicion, and rightly so, because the San Francisco Police Department was constantly, you know, cracking down, raiding gay bars and, you know, taking people into the park and clubbing them with nightsticks. So there was just a lot of tension. And the murder of Harvey Milk, who was one of the first openly gay elected officials in the whole country, um, and really the mascot of this community, I mean, that just, it just blew everything wide open. And even more so when Dan White was put on trial and given a relatively a slap on the wrist. If the gay community was devastated before because of the assassinations, the verdict is really what turned that into complete rage. And so there was a, a night called the White Night Riots where the entire Castro community just was ripping up cars, setting things on fire, and the SFPD reacted by raiding gay bars, beating people. It's a legendary night in the gay rights movement. What does Opal do? So he was very involved. He appeared at a benefit for some of the protesters who'd been arrested. And, um, you know, he was, on one hand, telling friends that he was going to write a play about what really happened to Harvey Milk. And he started developing this plan for something he was going to do, a kind of performance art piece where he was going to go to the Gay Freedom Day Parade and stage a pseudo event called The Execution of Dan White. He had a friend who looked just like Dan White. So the idea is they would dress someone up as Dan White and that Opal would appear as a leather man and publicly execute him. There was actually a poster for this event at the parade that said, what would happen if a queer, gay, homosexual, pervert, cocksucker, faggot shot and killed an ex-cop? Would he get away with mm. murder? And he does this performance and it makes the evening news, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the gay parade that year, 1979, United Nations Plaza, and Opal introduced himself as the character Gay Justice, like in an allegory. And then he, quote unquote, executed this lookalike of Dan White. And did he get in trouble for this? They immediately got death threats at his gallery. Yeah. The organizers of the parade strongly advised him against doing it, but he did it anyway. So it did upset people. So then, and this was maybe the most surprising part of your very surprising piece, Robert Opal gets a girlfriend. Yeah, he does. You thought that was the most surprising part, huh? I mean, I did. So, okay, so this was this woman, Camille O'Grady. She is like a super punk. And she had come from New York where she was in a punk band. She knew Robert Maplethorpe and also dated him. So she had several gay boyfriends. So Camille O'Grady ended up in San Francisco. Uh, she got there at the end of 1978. Maplethorpe had told her to look up Robert Opal. So she goes to the gallery. They have this like four hour mind meld 
And soon they're dating and they're kind of tied at the hip. And Camille actually moved into the back of Feiwei Studios, which had a little apartment. And they're basically living together. And all of this is happening so quickly. This is only a couple years after the streaking, right? Yeah, this is 1979. So five years after the streak. And they make a little movie together called Fuck You, Santa Claus, <laughs> which I... Did that win in the Oscars? <laughs> no, but they do have a nominee this year called My Year of Dicks. So I feel like maybe Robert Oplethorpe's, you know, long influence has been felt. And he's interviewing, like, John Waters and Divine for this proposed cable station that he's trying to create. And oh, he yeah, decides yeah. to he decides to fund that by selling drugs. Right. I mean, first of all, I love that he was, of course, in the same milieu as John Waters and Divine. Of course. Why wouldn't he be? He just loved that sort of down and dirty, campy, outrageous John Waters over. Um, is is Opal very charming? He, delightful. Every foot, okay. All the footage I've seen of him, he's funny. He just had so much spark and energy and, and conviction. He had political conviction behind all this stuff, but he always sort of laced it with, with humor, with outrageous, rivaled humor. And he's selling drugs. Is this right. new or has he been doing this the whole time? The people who knew him seemed to think that he had he started selling drugs to kind of fund his activities. He was selling PCP or Angel Dust and Opal would take it himself and he would... Um, oh sort of run through the streets naked, a little bit of a throwback to his streaking days. And Camille, his his new girlfriend, Camille Grady, was very much against this whole thing. She was very worried about him. She would videotape him while he was on PCP and then show him the next day to say, like, look, you end the night, like, curled up in a ball, weeping. Like, this is not cool. Uh, And so what happened on this night of July 8th, 1979? So this was two weeks after the execution of Dan White. This all happened within two weeks. Oh, yeah. Wow. So July 8th, 1979, O'Grady went out to a club called The Plunge, and Opal was not feeling well, so he was back at the gallery. So Camille was with a friend uh, called Anthony Rogers, who his nickname was Harmodious. And so Camille and Harmodious are at this club, and she was very into sort of spiritualism, and she said she had a premonition. And she said, Anthony, we've got to go back to the house. So they get back around 9 p.m., to Feiwei Galleries. And while they're there, there's a, a buzzer that rings at the front door. They go to the door and in come these two really rough looking guys. And one of them pulls out a handgun. The other has a sawed off shotgun. And they demand money and they demand drugs. And one of them puts the muzzle of the shotgun right on Camille's neck and says, give us the money or I'll kill her. And Opal unwisely fought back. He said, you'll have to kill us all. There's no money. And then he keeps saying, get out of my space. And that's just the kind of guy he is. He was not taking any shit from anyone. And you he's know, not afraid of David Niven. He's not going to be afraid of these guys. Well, I mean, he should be because David Niven isn't going to kill you, except with his dry wit. <laughs> so the, the first guy with the the shotgun says, I'll, I'll blow your head off. And he fired a warning shot up at the ceiling. Opal says, get out, get out. He says, you're going to have to shoot me. And meanwhile, Camille and Harmodius, Anthony Rogers, were tied up in the back. And they hear a shot, and then they hear a thud. And that is the murder of Robert Opal. The two gunmen, they leave. Um, Camille and Harmodius untie themselves, go out into the gallery and see 
Robert Opal uh, bleeding from uh, above his eye and taking his last breaths. How big a story was this murder when it happened? It was really big in the gay press. So in the Bay Area Reporter, there it was front page news. And part of what happened immediately after the murder is that the gay community thought that this was somehow a big plot and that was it was a political assassination essentially because remember it had happened two weeks after his performance art about dan white in the gay parade and you know milk had just been killed milk had just been killed the mayor had just been killed the cops were raiding people like san francisco was having a meltdown and so everyone was very conspiracy minded and in a way rightly so like crazy things were happening absolutely mind-bending things were happening and so the gay community saw the killing of Robert Opal as this couldn't have just been a stick up for drugs. Like this had to have been a political assassination. Who were these guys? These guys turned out to be um, Maurice Keenan was the man who actually shot Robert Opal. And then Robert Kelly was his accomplice. I don't want to be murdered by a Maurice. I want a much tougher, <laughs> I want a much tougher name on my murderer. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I found out a lot about, but really didn't have room in the story for was just sort of their background and what led them to this moment. They basically, Maurice was absolutely on a, a crazy drug binge. He was on a just a paranoid frenzy that had lasted days. It came out that the day before he had shot his own dealer because he thought that uh, he was, you know, working for the man. Um, Maurice Keenan was tried in the early 80s and and he was sentenced to death and he spent uh, many years on death row. And then years later, in an appeal, his sentence was downgraded to life in prison. And he, is he still alive on death row? Yeah, or on, he's in, in prison? prison in California somewhere. I wrote him a letter in prison. He never responded. So you not only wrote this story about the Oscar streaker, you also wrote a whole book about the Oscars called Oscar Wars. What would you say is your craziest Oscar story? You know, I have been there covering it when the envelope mix up happened with Moonlight oh. Land. I was there for the slap last year. And oh, wait, you were there for the slap. I was there. Yeah, I saw it happen from the cheap seats up in the balcony. I saw it happen live on TV. And I remember being shocked at the audience reaction and the fact that the audience was so eager to keep this show going and pretend it didn't happen. What was the feeling in the theater? Absolute bewilderment. A lot of people. But everyone pretended it was no big deal. No, no, no. People were just. It was like, it was just shock. You know what it felt like? It felt like when you're in a bar and a very violent brawl breaks out or two people are yelling in a restaurant or something like, you know, something where you're in a public place, there's some, this element of like danger and unpredictability. And some people even there thought that it might've been, you know, a a comedic bit. Um, Mm. I didn't, because as soon as I heard him say, get my wife's name out your fucking mouth, I thought, well, you can't say that on TV. And he sounds extremely angry. I can hear this all, all the way in the balcony. I could hear him yelling. And I was like, this man just had a moment. But, you know, it's funny to bring it back to the streaker. I mean, the Oscars always has an element of unpredictability because you don't know who's going to win. But then there are these moments that are just in their own echelon of absolute crazy, unpredictable things. And, you know, I think the slap is up there with the streak, with Sashin Littlefeather, you know, declining the award mm-hmm. for Marlon Brando, the envelope mix up. You know, these things that just happen, they become the story of the evening. Michael Shulman, you wrote The Ballad of the Oscar Streaker for The New Yorker. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. So who knows? Maybe this year there'll be another streaker or a slapper 
or someone to make the Oscars a tiny bit interesting, to give us something to actually talk about the next day. But let's be honest. Most years, the Oscars suck. It's like a sports event where instead of watching the game, someone just shows up on screen and announces a winner. Worse, the mood in the place is awful. You start out with a bunch of nervous people, and then halfway through, it's just a bunch of pissed off people who didn't win their awards and don't want to be there. But you know what? There is something I actually look forward to every Oscars night. And that's reserving a table at a restaurant in Los Angeles that's normally totally booked. At the end of the show, what's next for Joel Stein? Maybe he'll take a nap or poke around online. Our show today was produced by Mo Laborde and Nisha Venkut. It was edited by Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our executive producer is Catherine Girardot. And our theme song was written and performed by Jonathan Colton. And a special thanks to my voice coach, Vicki Merrick, and my consulting producer, Lauren Zelaznik. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joel Stein, and this is Story of the Week. Do you think if you'd been in San Francisco during this time, you would have been involved in any of this? God, I would love just like a day in 1979 San Francisco in the Castro. I don't think I would be involved in like the 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 leather scene. I don't think I can, I really have the stomach for that, but um, I, I maybe I would have been a Castro boy. Who knows? You know, after only having talked to you for about an hour and a half, I can tell you that you would have been involved in none of this. <laughs> I like disco. I've been, to, I've gone and disco danced. Oh my God, that's, I've gone and disco danced. I would have loved, I would have thrived in the disco age. Thrived. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.